welcome to another episode of Virtues for the Times, where we try to shed light on the ethical issues in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. On a previous episode, we considered the role of religion in America and promised to take a local look at issues affecting religious communities. Now, what may immediately come to mind when thinking about religion in the context of COVID-19 are the thousands of Australians across the country having to worship online. More recently, Christian communities petitioned the New South Wales government to, on par with pubs and cafes, permit gathering of 50 people in churches. This hasn't uh, been the only challenge facing religious communities over the past month. Indeed, an important role for religious groups in times of crisis is to provide some spiritual respite for families, communities and individuals And this includes practical ways to move forward despite social restrictions. Today, we consider responses to COVID-19 focusing on religious and democratic activity at the grassroots level. Now, one organisation that engages everyday people from diverse religious and non-religious backgrounds in working for the common good in Sydney is the Sydney Alliance. The Alliance is a coalition of community organisations from diverse Christian, Jewish and Islamic communities and trade unions that organises its members to make Sydney a more equitable and just city to live. Now, our two guests on the podcast today are both deeply involved in the Sydney Alliance and are here to talk to us about democratic participation at the local level in Sydney. So we have Rosemary Hancock and David Barrow. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Great to be here. Thanks. Now, we'll start with Rosie. Tell us a little bit about what you do and your involvement with Sydney Alliance first. Yeah, uh, so I'm a sociologist of religion and uh, one of the researchers at the Institute for Ethics and Society. And my area of research is religious engagement and grassroots politics. And I have been working with the Sydney Alliance since 2018, um, doing an ethnography with them, um, looking at the way in which the different religious organisations are involved and um, what the political culture is like and what that does for the Alliance and for its politics. And David, you're one of the lead organisers in the Sydney Alliance, is that right? Yeah, so my name's David Barrow. I'm the lead organiser at Sydney Alliance. I've spent the last 10 years as uh, lead organiser working with the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney, Parramatta and Broken Bay, and bringing Catholics together with all that diversity you mentioned on issues of the common good. Now, how does this relationship come about? What What is a, an ND researcher doing with the Sydney Alliance, Rosie? Yeah, um, so I really wanted my the research that I do to uh, be connected to the world and um, for my, my kind of everyday work to be meaningful and feel like what I'm doing contributes even in a really small way to social justice and the common good. I think a lot of that comes about from having very strong parental influences um, who really, you know, dedicated their lives to very practical kind of pursuits of um, justice in their everyday work. And um, as an academic, sometimes it feels like your work can be, if it's very theoretical, can be a little bit um, disengaged um, from sort of everyday challenges and things that are going around along around you. And so as I was coming through um, my PhD work, uh, I started to realise that I really wanted uh my research work and the, and the sort of the things that I'm doing with my academic career to be, um, I wanted to spend my time out in the community and try and be as engaged as possible and make my research um, as useful as possible to organisations like the Sydney Alliance that are working for social justice. And I definitely haven't got that perfect, <laughs> but it's really important to me. 
Right. It sounds it sounds like a fantastic uh, contribution, Rosie. And David, what's it like having Rosie in the Alliance? I mean, do you have many researchers within the Alliance? It's actually fantastic. Most of the most of the time, you know, as an organizer, I'm on, I'm on the go right now. Uh, we're between meetings. We're working on issues of, you know, renewing the church and renewing organizations and being involved in justice issues. And we don't necessarily have time to reflect. One of the things that I really appreciated about uh, Rosie as an academic is not only is she coming with that academic sense of reason and research, but also with that depth of religious understanding that brings an element of reflection. So we get two for the price of one when we uh, when we have Rosie involved in our work. So I suppose the first thing I'm interested in is what what impact have you seen for Rosie from your point of view as a researcher and David as an, as an organizer? The impact you've seen from COVID-19 on grassroots democracy. Let's start with you, Rosie. I think I'm going to speak really specifically about what I've noticed in the Sydney Alliance. And I think that they were faced with a really unique challenge uh, in terms of other, in terms of sort of the um, grassroots democratic groups that operate in Sydney, because the Sydney Alliance model is built on face-to-face interpersonal relationships. And unlike some of the other kind of big civil society organisations that already use a lot of digital campaigning tools, the Alliance was relatively low tech, not not uh, sort of in a Luddite way, but just really prioritised face-to-face organising work. And so bringing in the enforced social distancing rules um, was a real challenge to continue for, for the kind of style and the culture of the Alliance to keep going. Um, and I think very bravely the Alliance preemptively decided to stop all of their face-to-face work before the New South Wales government actually enforced those rules. Um, and they've shifted all of their organising onto Zoom. Uh, and, I, you know, every kind of professional and and many kind of people are finding that all of their work is now happening on Zoom. And it's been really interesting as a researcher for me to see um, the way in which the Alliance has been forced by COVID-19 to adapt their political practices to a whole new social reality. Um, and kind of the efforts that are being made to keep nourishing the strong interpersonal bonds that are really the backbone of the organisation while we're all physically distant and in isolation from one another. Um, I'm sure David will speak to this a bit more, but I think in a way, whilst that's brought lots of challenges, it's also brought a lot of energy to the work of the Alliance. Um, And so there's been a whole heap of work being done on new local organising teams. I'm part of one that's happening in Marrickville, and these are dotted across Sydney suburbs. The Alliance has put lots of work into training, uh, certainly early on. It put a lot of work into training um, members of the Alliance in Zoom. So literally just, you know, how can we use technology to keep doing political work at a really challenging time? Um, I think the long-term impact on the kind of political culture remains to be seen, but there's definitely a lot of energy and um, uh, and the Alliance has really risen to the challenge. David, a lot of the work uh, that the Sydney Alliance uh, does, as I was listening to Rosie, is is face-to-face kind of dialogue and a lot of these conversations I'm sure are, are bolstered by, by meeting in a room and, and being able to see each other face-to-face. What's your take on how Sydney Alliance is responding then uh, in the midst of COVID-19? One of the things that we take from our reflective practice that comes from the religious organisations that are part of the Alliance is that relationships are critical. And for the last 10 years, as we've worked on issues of housing or energy or, um, you know, penalty rates, the work-life balance, all the things that affect, you know, the people in uh, South and West Sydney, you know, to a huge effect, 
we've known we've got to build those relationships. And so each meeting starts with a relational round where people share stories about who they are, what and why they're motivated. You can imagine with an organisation that brings together the Arab Council and the Jewish Board of Deputies, trade unions and Catholic priests, there's a lot of import to actually spending that time. What that meant was when we are hit by two uh, crises, first the bushfires and then by COVID, it meant that our whole organisation could pivot very quickly because the trust was established. People knew each other and they knew how to organise together. So that was the first thing that we did. The second thing I would say is that the experience of COVID has meant that our organisation was suddenly in the centre of a number of national debates around who gets job seeker, who gets job keeper, because our organisation brings together uh, institutions that care about low-income people, parishes with low-income people in Western Sydney, ethnic organisations, trade unions that represent people working in retail, cleaners, security guards, people now out of work. And many of those people are overseas workers. They're on visas or they're international students. We have a whole campaign working on people seeking asylum. And suddenly those people had no access to income. They lost their jobs in the first week. They uh, were then drawing on their superannuation or on their um, savings. And by week eight and week nine, we started hearing terrible, terrible stories coming through our network. People who had turned to sex work uh, to put, keep a roof over their head, landlords that had thrown them out. I mean, incredible if you think about um, all the you know, conversation that happened around uh, you know, supporting landlords with all those extra funds. We had people who um, were overcrowding uh, in, in uh, housing. We had people who um, were down to their last 50 cents, who couldn't access services and emergency um, help because they weren't eligible. And so what we did was we started by collecting the stories and then we used all of the relationships that come from that broad diversity of organisations to get those voices into the, the heads, essentially, of the political decision makers. And it resulted in a $21 million package for accommodation and legal for international students, $7 million nationally for the Red Cross for emergency funds for migrant workers, and $6 million for people seeking asylum and other temporary workers in New South mm. Wales. And that, um, that work... It could only have taken a coordinated approach across that diversity of organisations. Mm, yeah, it sounds like an, an incredible challenge to to sort of pull all of that fantastic work off. Um, given that you're you're connecting online, uh, and you know, have to have dialogues and agreements, I, I assume, and sort of be on the same page with things, and 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 sometimes not, but still move forward. I'm really interested in something that you that you said there before Rosie that people within the alliance were rising to the challenge if this is so what do you think the perspective of religious communities contributes is there something particularly valuable or unique or special about what religious communities can offer yeah uh, definitely I think that one of the things that's really interesting the alliance sent around an email um early on in the crisis, and I'm probably going to get the wording slightly wrong off the top of my head, but basically saying that, you know, in a crisis, one of the, the things that matter most are relationships. And when we are, um, when you look around kind of society today, there's been a whole lot of sociological research that shows that a lot of the relationships that um, create civil society, um, that create a democracy, that these relationships have become very, very weak, um, that people don't belong to organisations in the same way that they used to. They don't, people aren't as active. 
active in sort of local neighbourhood associations and sporting groups and all of that kind of thing. And so religious communities are um, some of the some of the few institutions that are left where people have really deep and meaningful relationships with people outside their immediate family. Um, and so those relationships are absolutely critical to helping any kind of society, not just the people that are involved in those communities, but those relationships like David was talking about, those relationships can be activated and mobilised to help people who exist outside of those communities as well. So in a way, there's this latent um, network potential in a way that exists within religious congregations and communities that are absolutely essential in a time of crisis. That's just kind of at a very instrumental level. That's before we even start talking about any of the kind of spiritual resources right. that, um, that that a religious community and organisation can bring to its members. David, what, what would be your, your take on that, having a lot of experience leading dialogue and organisations and initiatives at, at this level? Uh, what do you think that some of the, you know, perhaps if I could say like the difference between non-religious organisations and what they might struggle with versus organisations that incorporate religious perspectives? Yeah, great, great question. I think the... <clears throat> Pardon me. A couple of things. The first is that the story of the second or third century Roman Christians who stayed in Rome when the plague hit is very instructive for the kind of perspective that many um, Catholic and Protestant uh, communities and Orthodox across the city uh, exhibited during this crisis, that we will not leave people behind, that we will care for people, whether it's the, the special emergency fund set up at Don Bosco Engadine Parish or whether it's the, the, the food service done at St. Bridget's at Marrickville, all across the city you saw um, parishes in, engage in that emergency help. But that was also coupled with the long view. You know, the thing that the biggest difference between the church and, say, a community organisation or trade unions, the church has a 2,000-year-old history. The Jewish community has a three or four thousand year old history. A trade trade unions have been in you know around for 150 years. Community services, you know, maybe 10, 15, 30, 40 at the most. And so that sense of longevity, that sense of the vision of what our community should be, is a powerful motivating force. And one of the things that we see in crisis is what resources do you bring to overcome fear? And hope is one of those resources. And that, that is in great supply. Um, well, let's not talk about it transactionally. That, that is a fountain uh, in, in parishes across the city. And that hope allows us to do things that are extraordinary, imaginative, creative. We don't stay in our bubble. Mm. So it sounds to me like, I mean, there's a sense in which we've we've been here, if I could put it quite simply, we've been here before, we've seen this based on the thousands of years of tradition we're, we're drawing upon. Um, but that doesn't sort of need to need to run contrary to the newer perspectives. In, in fact, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that they, they're complementing each other. And what struck me as you, as you were speaking, I mean, we talk a lot about um, health workers uh, putting their lives at risk. And of course, this is true and they do an incredible job. But what really struck me is that um, in that outreach that you were talking about we have a lot of parishioners um, and you know people from different religious groups uh, doing the same thing absolutely I mean I think one thing I would say is that the challenge that that parishes in St Vincent de Paul's have is this aging demographic and and that's and that's well documented 
And so I think there was this double experience of wanting to be out there on the front line, but for their own health and from the strict instructions of their children and grandchildren, no, 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 you're staying at home. And, and so what that has led to is a extraordinary take up of Zoom, uh, which you wouldn't otherwise ex uh, maybe expect to engage, to be part of the conversation, to be heard by um, politicians, uh, to be involved. And so, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated because of that, um, uh, that, uh, that reality, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm thinking of my own uh, um, grandfather, may may he rest in peace. He was never one to be, uh, you know, to be left out of a conversation. So, so I can imagine the defiance, and that's fantastic that you know that something like Zoom is available too. Uh, what are, what about what are some of the other challenges? I mean, I've, we, we've kind of touched on um, what religious perspectives can bring to the table, but what were the and you've noted sort of the, the challenge of um, physical space, but what are some of the other big challenges that religious communities have faced during COVID-19? Grief. The deep sense of grief that religious communities have in having this part of themselves taken away from them in this moment. And, and I think for secular folks, it can be hard to understand the depth of that experience. And, uh, and you can see that in some of the media stories around, you know, some of the reactions or comments that people made around opening, you know, opening the churches and, and so on. And so I think that, that that grief is instructive around how much we, we are, as, as humans, we want to be together um, and we want to be practicing um, our lives together. So I think that that's not necessarily a challenge because I think people, I think people, particularly in, in Sydney, in my experience, were in good humour of it. They, they had enough resources to be in good humour. But, I mean, whether it was Easter or whether it was Ramadan or whether it was some of the Sikh and Hindu um, uh, holidays that happened during this time, that was a palpable grief. The thing that we learn from our, our religious traditions, and myself included in my own, is that we put that grief to work. That, 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 that grief is a, is a fuel and that we take it and we put it out into the world and we put it to work. And, um, and, and I've certainly seen that from the uptake in um, some of the work that we've done in the Alliance around bringing people together to, 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 get, uh, to get change and to get to the table where these big decisions are being made on a 24-hour basis. Um, and so that mm. needs that quick responses. Yeah. Rosie, would you, would you add anything to that from what you're seeing in, in your experience? I agree with what David has, has said. I mean, I think not only are people missing the kind of interconnection connection that they have with their communities. I'm sort of loosely affiliated with Christchurch St. Lawrence and, you know, they were absolutely devastated when they could no longer celebrate the Eucharist altogether. That there are some elements of kind of religious ritual and practice where you not being not actually physically being there, you do lose mm. um something. Something significant. And and that can't be replicated or replaced. There is no, there is no kind of alternative, I suppose. And you can, you can, you can find these little workarounds. Mm. You can find these things that you can do instead, but you don't get the same thing by doing it over Zoom, by watching someone, um, if, if you're not physically present there. And that means more in some traditions than it does in others. Even within, you know, the Anglican Church, it means more to the people at Christchurch and Lawrence than it does to people uh, in another church, for example. And so I think those kind of small things 
are a struggle um, for people that, that people have had to deal with. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Definitely something missing there uh, without the, the sort of the bodily, you know, the, the physical aspect to it. That makes part of practicing religion. Another thing that I, that sort of struck me as, as, you, were, as you were explaining that is that uh, whilst Zoom has been great, it has its limits. But David, do you see um, with the sort of, with the adoption of, of Zoom uh, and new ways of doing things, do you see, you, you used the word longevity before, do you see this as a kind of midterm thing, as a, as a long-term thing, something that would just now be adopted as a way of going about business for Sydney Alliance? It can take two hours to get across Sydney. So organising people to come to meetings has meant that that cost that is uh, taken into people's participation in in democracy uh, has been one of those costs has been taken away, which is that um, time travel cost. And so we've seen many, many leaders who are elderly, who are disabled or um, can't get their mobility out or people who can simply not afford to travel, which sounds strange, but is uh, a reality in this work, um, participate through Zoom. We also know that we have a million Australians that can't, that are digit that can't get access digitally. And so while we think about what this might look like in the future, we are holding those two tensions of access for those who've got the technology but can't necessarily get to meetings and those who um, don't yet have access to that technology. You were talking before about some of the... I just wanted to jump in and kind yeah, of yeah. add Go. to something that David just, just said there. And that's that... Um, one of the things that I think has been, one of the things that I've noticed, I'm sure David has noticed this in, in what he's been doing with the Alliance, is that the move onto Zoom, so where, where you're not asking people to travel to a meeting, because the, as I said right at the beginning, the Alliance has always privileged this kind of interpersonal way of relating to one another. So there's, you always go to a meeting. I've been involved with the People Seeking Asylum team since 2018, and we always meet in person. Uh, and you know, I'm now co-chair of that, and I will meet with the uh, with the organizer and the other co-chairs um, in person the week before to plan that meeting. So there's a lot of in person, and and you know, you have to travel to these things, and so it's beyond just the time commitment of the meeting itself. There is the time commitment to coming um, to the travel as well. And what's really interesting is that that kind of you know, in sort of classic studies of politics and, and grassroots political activity, um, you know, they talk about that as like a co the cost of participating in political life. That's it, one of the costs. And people weigh up the costs of, am I going to participate or am I not? Can I afford this? Not And not just in monetary terms, but in time terms. And what's been really interesting, certainly in the people seeking asylum team, is that there have been people who have been coming to meetings on Zoom who were only very loosely affiliated to the team previously, uh, maybe had expressed interest, had shown up to an event or two, but had not been active in any of the real organising work, had not been coming to meetings. And, you know, one of the challenges to the Alliance, I think, is that um, how, do you, how do you keep the benefits of moving to Zoom? So like David was saying, they can, you know, all of this distributed organising across the city, but also the pre-existing teams having this influx of energy from people where suddenly the cost of participation has been dramatically reduced. So how can you keep those benefits but still kind of go back to an interpersonal way of operating? And, you know, I think that's going to be an interesting challenge moving forward. Yes, that's certainly going to be a... A key question, it seems, Rosie. David, earlier you were talking about some of the 
important social contributions that the Alliance has made. Along with these, how else do you think the Sydney Alliance is making an important contribution to democracy in Sydney? I think the number one thing is like Rosie just talked about the cost of involvement. And I think that the Sydney Alliance creates a bridge for an everyday person to be at the table where decisions are made. And um, sometimes those decisions are are hidden behind many doors and sometimes they're just getting the right Zoom link into the conversation with the decision maker. But that's, the win is not just the, the financial support that we've seen in the emergency. The win is also the kind of solidarity that is built between people of great difference in this city. It's one of the most ethnically diverse uh, cities in the world. We know that uh, for, for a start. Um, the, the other win is around when someone has been involved in, in this political work, and I don't mean partisan work, I mean political work meaning the welfare of the city, the polis. When someone has been involved in that political work, they can continue to be involved in that work for the rest of their life. It, it's been demystified. And that place of bringing, bringing people of faith and moderation into the conversation, not just leaving the conversation to those on the, either end of the spectrum and those who are kind of in the business of politics or lobbying or uh, talking about politics as a hobby, um, that is something that's really, really important for our democracy. Um, and the thing that we've seen a decline in, you know, through the rise of social media. So wouldn't it be ironic if Zoom, another technical social media, you know, tool sure. had actually helped us balance out some of the ravages that we've experienced from being Twitterfied and, yeah, you know, absolutely. echo chambers around social media. I mean, I think the other thing I will say is that the, the, the complexity is that social media over the last 10 years has meant that our echo, echo chambers have never been stronger or more resolute and when you take out the physical experience of going out to the world and seeing other people people have been in their bubbles and so the biggest thing that that we've done i think in the alliance and that people of faith have, have engaged with enthusiastically i think because of that weekly experience of being mixed up at, at, a, at a church service for example <laughs> is i know there's people out there suffering but they're not on my facebook feed and so in the Alliance meetings, you actually get into conversation with people who are experiencing things different from your own. And that has been a really powerful um, learning from this experience. Yeah. Rosie, is there anything that you, you know, from your perspective that, that you see as the sort of contribution that Sydney Alliance makes to democracy in Sydney? Yeah, I mean, I really want to lift up what David said about, about bringing people together across difference. I think that... Um, it is very easy for us to live inside uh, um, like a self-made filter bubble in a way. You know, we spend time, we tend to self-select friends who have similar interests to our own. We spend time in our own community. You know, we go, if we go to church, we spend time in that congregation. And yes, there is diversity within within our religious communities, but there is there is also something that holds us all together. And the Alliance challenges people to not just sit in a room but actually work productively with people where we have radically different lives we belong to radically different communities and there are challenges to that but there is also um, incredible kind of beauty and immense democratic importance to having um, people who people with no religion who have been lifelong trade unionists working and sitting next to um, religious leaders of diverse um, religious communities um, 
and and like David said, the alliance is nonpartisan. So you have people who are from different kind of ends of the political spectrum, but both have com- have commitments to kind of justice and the common good in Sydney working together as well. And people, you know, really need to put a, there's sort of a, it is not a putting aside of differences. There's a recognition of kind of the strength and diversity that comes right. from working together. Um, and that is um, really difficult political work. And I think the Alliance is one of the few places where that kind of thing is happening in Sydney. And that's just a huge win for democracy in Sydney. I can imagine it's a place for, you know, where, where really good, uh, robust argument takes place as well. Not everybody would know about this, the great work uh, that Sydney Alliance, of course, many people would, but how do people sort of find out a little bit more about it, get involved, that sort of thing? Send me an email and I will respond. Me, <laughs> okay, the lead organiser will respond to you, not some robot. Uh, because because the thing is, one person in the neighbourhood can make a massive difference. We say, you know, one voice can change a room. If they can change a room, they can change their neighbourhood. If they can change their neighbourhood, they can change their city. If they can change their city, they can change the country. So um, there's a lot of things that are changing around us. Uh, and I think one thing that I learned from uh, uh, Bishop Anthony Fisher, he said um, if, in one of his sermons, uh, if things are going to stay the same, we've got to change a lot around here. And, uh, and so we've got to protect the things that we love about our country and about our economy right now because it's all under question. And, uh, and I guess we're involved in that, um, in that conversation and, uh, and that effort. And we'd love to have your listeners be part of it, whether they're academics, Catholic parishioners, you know, or both. Wonderful. Well, well, what a great, a great note to to finish on. I'd like to thank you both for your time and coming on the podcast, but also just for the fantastic work work you're both doing. It really sounds uh, very inspiring. So well done on on your involvement uh, in the Sydney Alliance, and thank you for joining me on the Virtues for the Time podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. And that was uh, Rosemary Hancock and David Barrow. Rosie is a researcher with IES and David Barrow is a lead organiser at the Sydney Alliance. And it was really fantastic to get their perspectives on religious participation um, in, in the city of Sydney and how that makes a big contribution to democracy, especially in these challenging times. And speaking of adversity, next week we'll be looking at how philosophy or philosophers have responded in the face of adversity across the ages and very much looking forward to that episode. Until then, thank you for listening this time around. It's been a pleasure. My name's Nick Zumarin, the host of the Virtues for the Times podcast brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Society at Notre Dame, Australia.